Tonight, Christians all over the world are gathering to do what we've just done here tonight. They are enacting the passion of our Lord Jesus Christ as a congregational reading. How did you like our role? We always get the part of the angry crowd and the religious leaders who are enthusiastically demanding the death of Jesus. That's painful, but it's fair. We, the church, represent a religious establishment supposedly devoted to serving God, to looking for and longing for the long-promised Messiah. We're the good church folks. If you're a regular around Emmanuel, that's us. Ever since Adam and Eve sinned against God at the beginning of human history, evil and sin, sorrow and death have been at work in our world, at work in human hearts inside and outside religious circles. And so that whole unpleasant cast of players in the passion story might seem familiar to you. There's the friend who betrays. There's the irrational, angry mob. There's the well-meaning, but inept, weak, and ultimately failed leader. There are the religious sellouts, the bullies who get off on brutality, the persecutors of the innocent. I wish that these roles were more unfamiliar to me than they are, but I have played some of these roles myself before, and not just during a Holy Week reading. Now, despite the depressing sameness of evils that crop up again and again in human hearts throughout history, Scripture actually insists that in the beginning it was not so. In the beginning, Human beings were made in the image of God himself. We were created to participate in the perfect fellowship of love that exists between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. We were created to live in harmony with our Creator and with one another. And when disaster struck... When Satan, in the form of a snake, tempted Adam and Eve to betray the Lord, and they opened the door to this miserable mess that we now live with, while we were still enemies of God, God did not abandon us. Instead, he set in place a plan. A plan where he would set aside his glory and majesty and rendezvous with us as one of us and pour out his own life for us to win us back away from Satan and cleanse the mess that we made for ourselves. This is why I love the passion story, even though I hate my role in it. This is the day God turned our upside-down world right side up again, the day that he 
broke us free from the sin that we are helpless against, the day he made all things new, it is truly the fulcrum point of history. Every year, I am astounded anew at the weight and the depth of that gospel telling. Every action, every word is packed with layers of meaning, and there's profound irony there. At one level, it's a very fascinating, very human drama. These are familiar dynamics, but it's supercharged with spiritual import like no other event in history. Those dynamics, those motivations, the complex interactions described all have a very familiar human feel to them. But then you can see glimpses of how the Father and the Son and the Spirit are working together through these ordinary, sad people to enact his wild rescue mission. And the people involved can't even see it. They can't fathom it themselves. During his years of teaching and healing, Jesus occasionally spoke of his role in the master plan to his disciples, although it still surprised them. He was going to willingly hand himself over to sinners and die a shameful death. The Holy Spirit was at work too. He was weaving the free will of the actors together with ancient prophecies that had always been part of the plan, taking things that human beings intended for evil and turning them to a good end, bringing them into cooperation with this holy plan of God. And then you have God the Father receiving the willing sacrifice of Jesus on the cross and then driving it like a stake through the heart of Satan's reign to smash the grip of sin and death in our lives and to scatter the darkness forever. We're going to spend just the next few minutes looking at the various folks who found themselves unwitting participants in God's rescue mission. I think there is a call to sobriety and repentance in the complex dynamics of this incredible story, and there's also cause for bold hope. Let's look at Judas, once a disciple of Jesus. He is infamous for betraying Jesus to the Jewish leaders on Monday, Thursday, and taking 30 pieces of silver in payment. This was in fulfillment of the prophecy of Zechariah 500 years earlier. But in truth, Judas had been paving the way for this larger betrayal for some time. He had already made a habit of betraying Jesus and his fellow disciples by embezzling money from their common purse. He couldn't or wouldn't see Jesus as one deserving his loyalty. And on the eve of the Passover, scriptures tell us that then the devil put it into the heart of Judas to betray Jesus. So Judas procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, and he led them to Jesus to arrest him. Likewise, the chief priests and the Pharisees are also working in their own interests 
while they are filling their roles in this cosmic drama. If anyone should have been cheerfully, willingly cooperating with their God in his plan to save the world, you'd think it would be the priests. (laughs) But no, or clergy. But Jesus came to his own, and his own did not receive him. They discovered that this humble carpenter's son was wielding a spiritual authority that first amazed them and then angered them. He is too big a threat to them for them to see him as he is, the Messiah King that they were longing for. Their hatred of him escalated into murderous rage, and so they cast themselves as willing participants who fulfilled the prophecy, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. You might remember that they tried to stone him several times, but somehow that never worked out. Their own power and authority proving useless They decided that only a public state-led execution could finish the job, and they wanted the local governor, Pilate, to do their dirty work for them. But that was trickier than they thought. Pilate has his own issues. He is conflicted about his relationship with the Jews. He doesn't appreciate being pressured by them, but he can't bring himself to say no to them for fear that they will send a damaging report about him back to his superiors further up the chain of command in the Roman Empire. And he's conflicted about Jesus, too. He decides early on in the interviews that Jesus is not the criminal that the Jewish leaders are making him out to be, but he has an uneasy feeling that there is more to this quiet and humble man than meets the eye. Pilate would really rather not mess with him. So Pilate spends the entire passion narrative bouncing back and forth, back and forth, back and forth between Jesus and the high priests, trying to to work out a compromise between his own conscience and his fears of messing up his job. Too timid to insist that the Jews accept his decision about Jesus' innocence as final, he decides instead to pervert justice in an attempt to appease them. Maybe they'll be satisfied if he just has Jesus flogged. And this is how the Roman army itself is conscripted into God's battle plan with its soldiers enacting multiple ancient prophecies concerning Jesus. Pilate's soldiers latch on to the rumor that Jesus is called king of the Jews. They throw a purple cloak on him and give him mock salutes as they slap him around. They fashion a crown for him in imitation of the divine crown on the the coins of the empire with thorns that disfigure the face of Jesus and begin to cover it with blood. Pilate parades a beaten, humiliated, and blood-soaked Jesus out before the priests 
and the people and says to them, Behold the man. Now, when this phrase in this passage of Scripture was translated into Latin about 1,700 years ago, the phrase, Behold the man, communicated something like, Look at this poor fellow. By beating an innocent man and displaying him before the angry Jewish leaders, Pilate hopes to embarrass them into giving up their plans to execute him. Look at this sorry chap. He's suffered enough. We don't need to kill this poor guy. He's harmless. And at the same time, Pilate is probably getting in, dig, getting in some digs against the Jewish leaders with whom he is clearly frustrated. This pathetic creature is a threat to you? This is the guy you can't deal with on your own? The chief priests are not satisfied. They refuse to behold the man. They are not interested in seeing Jesus. They are interested in protecting themselves against the threat he seems to pose to them. And so they scream louder, Crucify him! Crucify him! Doesn't end there. Pilate insists a second time, I find no guilt in him. The high priests complain that even if Jesus isn't really a threat to the Roman Empire, which was their original tactic with Pilate, they say he is breaking their religious laws. He's a blasphemer who claims to be the son of God equal with God. This spooks Pilate even more. He has one more very unsettling conversation with Jesus. And scripture says from then on, Pilate sought to release him as if he hadn't been trying already. He's tried, he tries again, he tries again. He's the governor of the state. He can't make it happen. Pilate has lost control of the situation. He has lost control of his authority. He's lost control of himself. So the power struggle between Pilate and the Jewish leaders intensifies. Veiled threats are exchanged. Buttons are pushed. Finally, Pilate hauls Jesus out again and shouts, Behold your king! And the Jewish leaders yell again, Crucify him! Pilate asks, Shall I crucify your king? And the chief priests blow up everything they stand for by declaring, we have no king but Caesar. So Pilate delivered Jesus over to be crucified. Now, every year at the Passion Reading, I wonder if the high priests and the people who joined them ever really understood what they had said. We have no king but Caesar. I think this is one of the saddest lines in all of Scripture. These men were devout Jews. They lived in a far-off, downtrodden corner of the empire, oppressed by the Romans, a place they could never really belong. They hated the Romans. They hated Caesar. And here they are, vociferously declaring their allegiance to him. 
Caesar is our king, they cry. Protect us from this usurper. Caesar is our only king. Now, yes, they were using these words to threaten and manipulate Pilate, but they are blowing up and burning down all that they stood for. Everything they had built their lives on, everything that they had staked their souls on. In their passion to frame Jesus for blasphemy, they actually committed blasphemy themselves. They could have told Pilate, we are still waiting for our king from God, but this man Jesus is not him, he's an imposter. But what they actually confessed was, we have no king. We are not actually waiting on the Lord. Just like you, Pilate, the only power we recognize are the powers of this world. Caesar is all we have. We're throwing in with him. Their human hatred, fueled by a demonic hatred, led them to an unwitting and damning revelation about who they really were. You and I are participants in this passion story of Jesus, too. We are already caught up into it, really and truly, as every human being who ever lived. We, we share the same weaknesses of will. We share that same narrow focus on self-interest that blinds us to the face of Jesus. We have the same stubborn bent towards self-destruction that leads us in big ways or small ways to betray ourselves, our neighbors, and the Lord we claim to worship and serve. We are the sons and daughters of those who would rather kill Jesus than humble ourselves before him and receive his love receive his tenderness, receive his compassion, receive his forgiveness. But praise be to God, the passion story does not end in the death of Jesus. On the third day, the Father completed the good work that he began. The sufferings of Jesus were crowned in glory. God the Father raised his beloved Son into life again so that Jesus might lead us out of death, leaving our sin behind and enter into resurrection glory with him. By the very blood that Jesus shed that night, we are cleansed from all our sins and made fit to become co-laborers with Jesus in his saving works, no longer working against him, but with him, gathered together under his wings. You see, there is another and better way to participate in the passion story. Toward the end of this account, the writer sneaks in a reference to yet another prophecy, a promise from God given through the prophet Zechariah. I will pour out on the house of David 
and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. On that day, there shall be a fountain opened up for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. This is our role in the passion story. Now, in a few moments, we're going to speak the solemn reproaches together. Father Aaron will take on the voice of Jesus, reminding us of the saving acts of God performed on our behalf throughout history. You and I have opportunity to respond to these reproaches humbly with pleas of mercy under God's grace. The framing of the reproaches reminds me very much of what Jesus said to the high priests when they struck him. He said, if what I said is wrong, bear witness, testify about the wrong. But if I, what I said is right, why do you strike me? We all end up making a judgment about Jesus. And as we behold him in the reproaches, we must either testify against him or against ourselves. It is hard to look upon someone who is suffering. It is harder still to look upon suffering that you yourself bear some responsibility for. That guilt that we bear toward Jesus is real, but the good news is Jesus came that we might not have to carry the guilt anymore. Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and we can lay our real sins at his feet, and he will really and truly from his heart forgive us. It is a powerful thing to look upon one we have wounded without cause and be met with unconditional love and forgiveness. It is the source of divine healing. So this is our invitation to behold the man, to look on the one whom we have pierced and ask to be cleansed in the fountain that springs from his side. The invitation to behold the man. And there is a second invitation. It's like the first. Behold your king. We behold the man and are cleansed from sin. We behold our king and say yes to him. We say yes, you are the one longed for and looked for. After the reproaches, you'll have an opportunity to come right up here and pray near the cross. And as you do so, you can offer words of love, your words of gratitude, and your obedience to your king. It can be a scary thing to follow a king who is so humble, a king who is so willing to suffer for the sake of others. Everyone who follows King Jesus must take up his or her own cross and join him 
in his saving work. But rejoice, because the word of God tells us that insofar as we share in Christ's sufferings, we will rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. The way of the cross is the way of life. Ask for his divine help to aid you in saying yes to him, trusting that he will carry you all the way through death and into life and glory. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom we are the foremost. But we received mercy for this reason, that in us, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.